As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. A lot of the stuff that I've done, I get lauded for having been the first, you know, the first Canadian to walk in space or the first Canadian to command a spaceship. I think what a lot of other people forget is those were a big first just for me as a, as a guy, as a person, you know. Ground control to Major Tom. We're all going to die. Every single one of us. The real question is, what do you get done while you're alive? And how close is that to the things that are important to you? And in my case, it was a relatively clear career choice. And my wife just said, okay, he's doing a dangerous thing. Let's just make a plan and accept the fact that this is just a potential consequence of his choices and our mutual choices. And then it's just, it's just life. This is ground control to Major Tom. You've really made the great... Welcome to the Movember podcast. I'm your host, Adam Garoni, one of the co-founders of the Movember Foundation. This show is dedicated to the real stories about dealing and sometimes not dealing with life's challenges drawing out the tools that lead to a happier, healthier, and longer life. Today, we're featuring another conversation in our series dedicated to transition. This is Mission Control Houston. Station, this is Houston. Are you ready for the event? Houston, the International Space Station, is ready for the event. The question is, if you get a cloth dripping wet without gravity and you wring it out, what's going to happen? So, Recently retired astronaut Chris Hadfield is known as the guy with the answers. He was the first Canadian to walk in space. He's been the voice of mission control to orbiting astronauts, and he commanded and lived on the International Space Station for six months. Second International Commander of the Space Station. With great humility and pleasure, I accept command of the International Space Station. Thank you very much for, um, for giving me the, uh, the keys to the family car. Um, we're going to put some miles on it, but uh, we'll, we'll bring it back in good shape. Chris Hadfield was nine years old when he saw Neil Armstrong walk on the moon. It's uh, different, but it's very pretty out here. That night, on July 20, 1969, he too decided he would become an astronaut. The Hadfield family is a flying family. Chris's father and two brothers flew for Air Canada. After Chris joined the Canadian Armed Forces in 1978, he spent the next two decades working for the Canadian Space Agency, and in 1992, he got his lucky break. In January of 92, the Canadian Space Agency placed astronaut wanted ads in Canadian newspapers. 5,300 wannabes applied. 
50 were invited for interviews. In June of 1992, he and the three other winners were paraded before the world at ceremonies in Ottawa. Three days later, NASA picked Hadfield to train next to Mark Galneau as Canada's first mission specialists. Major Hadfield, his wife Helena, and their three children were off to Houston. Here we have a go for main engine start. Five, four, three, two, when we were booking Chris, it became clear he's an exceptionally busy man. I had exactly 48 hours notice to get up to Toronto, so I took the 7am flight, landed at 3pm, had about an hour to get myself across to the Holiday Inn near the airport, and we had exactly 35 minutes to do a meet and greet, a handshake, photo opportunity, and then sit down and record this podcast. Well, Chris, thanks for joining us here on the uh, November podcast in Toronto. It is my pleasure. Glad to be able to. Thanks. This series is about the transitions a guy, a man goes through in his life and, and oftentimes how we don't deal with transitions and then and sometimes deal with them well. And uh, I wanted to talk about some of the transitions um, in, in your life. Um, so do you ever think you'll be back in space? I don't expect to have a chance to fly in space again. The technology is is improving rapidly. The things that some of the leading inventors right now are doing what Jeff Bezos is doing, what Elon Musk is doing, uh, what Boeing is doing is uh, lowering the bar of entry to space lower than it's ever been. But I have had the tremendous spaceflight experience. I've been off the world for half a year and commanded a ship and, and, um, it's sort of as if, you know, I was a formula one racer for a bunch of years and someone said, Hey, you want to, want to ride on my unicycle? And I'm like, well, okay. But once you've had a quick ride on the unicycle, it just, it's just not the same, it, you know, as the richness and the depth and the complexity of the experiences I've, I've had. So um, it's, it's unlikely. But the technology, you know, it's happened in other industries. If suddenly spaceflight becomes more readily available, I would love the chance to go to the moon. And that may happen while I'm alive. We'll see. But I, I'm not dissatisfied with my life at this point either. <laughs> yeah. So, so, uh, but I've retired from um, working for the federal government. I was 35 years in between the military and the Canadian Space Agency. I've been a private citizen for four years. So I don't expect to fly in space again, uh, but that's okay. My intent was never to try and um, check something off on some list. My intent was to challenge myself to do something that, was right on the very hairy edge of possible or, or even well into the realm of impossible and see if somehow I could build a set of circumstances that would allow me to prevail and do well at that. And, I, and, and those challenges are always out there. So uh, it doesn't just one more flight in space wouldn't necessarily accomplish any of those things. So, so given the risks, and I read one in thirty-eight yeah. chance of it, it, it not. Um, yeah, I remind myself of that. If you if you just sit by the roadside and quickly watch thirty-eight cars mm. go by and realize, okay, they're all going to die today. They're all going to die today. You know, that gives you a sense of just how bad those odds are. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it led to my next question, which is around work-life balance, and and with such a career so intense, um, and you know, a young family. How did, how did you manage that? I think if you're looking for work-life balance, you are forever going to drop the ball. I think what you need to recognize is that your work is a major and important part of your life. So it's not like of either or. Uh, 
you need to figure out how to recognize that your work has value in the decision making of your life. And, and don't think, oh, my work is a big negative. And if only I didn't have to work, then I could have a good life. Maybe it's something I got from my own father, but I've always sort of looked at it the other way around. How can I um, enjoy my work? How can I make work so interesting and challenging for me that it helps define my life, the pleasure of my life? And at the same time, enable my wife and myself and my kids to lead a good life. How can you do all those things at the same time? And you never get it right. If you focused everything on on one facet of it, and then everything else is going to suffer. So I think the real key is to be passionately interested and as good as possible at the things you are doing, whether it is reading your child a book or uh, going for a walk with them or taking them to the park or doing your work or driving to work or getting ready for the thing you're going to do next year. Try and take it all seriously and do it all as well as you can and take pleasure in it all. There's great pleasure in work and there's great pleasure in in play and child rearing and um, they'll all drive you crazy, but it's your choice whether you go crazy or whether you have a great time or not. Chris was working as a NASA astronaut in 2003 when the Space Shuttle Columbia disaster occurred. The shuttle disintegrated upon re-entering the Earth's atmosphere, killing all seven crew members. So in 2003, with the uh, Space Shuttle Columbia disaster, it, it must have been a pivotal time in, in your life. Have, you knew the crew, you knew the commander um, very well. Um, how did that moment affect you? When good friends of yours die, uh, it forever leaves uh, a scar and a hole and a uh, and an unfulfilled emptiness. And the closer they were to you, the 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 deeper all that is. My first good friend, uh, that I best friend on squadron, a guy named Tristan DeConnick, died very violently in an F eighteen crash. We had. He had two little girls, same age as my two little boys at the time. We were the best of friends, guitar players together, huge respect for his flying ability. And he, he hit the ground and died one day. And uh, I, I don't ever want to get over that as if it didn't matter. But at the same time, the scar tissue that started to form, and it took a long time after that, helped me in subsequent losses of friends. And, and in my, my professions have been dangerous. I've lost a lot of friends violently doing their job, um, like a lot of people in, in the military or, the, or other professions like that. And with each one, it doesn't lessen the grieving or the impact of it, but at least it gives you some sort of capability to deal with it, I think. When Columbia came apart on its re-entry into the atmosphere and uh, the seven crew on board were essentially uh, beaten to death and their bodies fell, gosh, you know, tens of miles and landed on the earth. Um, It was just crushingly, emotionally horrific. But then, fairly shortly, you just look around and say, what should we do next? 
And the easiest thing for me, Rick Husband, who was the commander of Columbia, and I went to test pilot school together. We sang together. He was an excellent fellow. Um, I just, he took care of my family during one of my launches. He went to the airport late because my folks' flight was delayed. And Rick had driven to Orlando Airport and picked up my folks and brought them to my launch. And I'd done the same for other astronauts during their launches. And so I just looked at it from that point of view. If it had been me coming back and it had been Rick on the ground, what would I have expected Rick to do? Would I have expected him to say, that's it, I quit? I mean, that, that would just, that's a ridiculous response in my mind. I would have expected Rick to say, take care of the f families, and then let's start looking at the problem, and then let's try and convince the world that we can be trusted to fly a spaceship again. So that's the process we went through. I felt just as culpable and guilty as, as anybody else. I was an experienced astronaut. I'd flown twice in space. I'd watched that piece of foam come off in the video, and I'd done nothing, just like everyone else. I didn't stand up and put my badge on the line and say, hey, I demand that we do a spacewalk. You know, I just, I made the same incorrect value judgment and technical judgment, and it, I helped condemn those guys to death. But it's an imperfect science, and you never be able to get all the information you need in order to make a decision. You have to do the best you can, and, and that's what everyone was doing. No one was malicious in any of their decision making. But uh, we learned a huge amount from it. We never hurt another person on a shuttle flight. We completed building the space station. We even went to Hubble a few times and built the world's, continued to improve the, the best telescope human beings have. And it's taught us the age of the universe. And, and so we turned that loss, and it was uh, an egregious one, a vehicle, but much more so of people, into as, as useful um, a human event as we possibly could. Learn from it. Don't just grieve for them, but actually try and try and make things better as the result of, of what they did. And that's exactly what I would have wanted people to do if one of my spaceships had come apart. Hearing Chris talk about his culpability with the shuttle made me think of ways men define themselves and sometimes define others based on responsibility. So, so how did you reconcile that as a dad and a husband? First, you need to decide what it is you want to accomplish in life, to me. What is it I'm trying to do? If I'm trying to do nothing, then I don't want to take any risks. If I'm trying to just live as long as possible, then my risk management is quite different. You know, if, 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 what is my goal? Is it to be the first person to make it to 127? Okay, well, in that case, my threats are quite different. You know, I need, I need to have a very special diet and exercise regime. And, you know, I, or am I trying to, whatever, climb Everest or, or be Sebastian Coe or Prime Minister of Canada or whatever? What is it I'm trying to accomplish? Every one of those things that I choose as my end game in life is going to dictate how I'm going to manage the risks in my life. What are the risks that are counter to my objective of my end game? That's just kind of how, whether you do it consciously or not, that is the life that you're in. In my case, I thought exploring the rest of the universe in person is what I want to do. So there are risks. So now my job is not avoiding risks. My job is managing those risks, learning about them, trying to understand them as as clearly as I possibly can, hopefully as clearly as anybody ever has. And then 
by understanding that by becoming as competent as possible, we can beat what would seem to be a random set of risks. And if, if you're sharp enough, you can beat some of those where they would kill someone who wasn't quite ready. And so it changes your entire job. Your job is not about crossing your fingers and, and whistling past the graveyard and hoping. Your job is about f absolutely facing up to the danger that's there and learning how to be the person that can defeat it. And, and then that makes you optimistic and comfortable going, okay, this is the job I'm doing. I'm not a guy who's just cowering and, and hoping that my number doesn't come up today. I'm actually a person very actively involved in my own success and survival. It involved having very frank conversations with my family. With the kids at first, it, they were too young. But for my third flight, they were old enough. And, uh, and with my wife, of course. My wife, it, it, she's, she recognizes that giving up on your dreams is not free. And if, if she had said, you can't fly in space anymore, that doesn't come for free. Remember that big dream you had? You can't do that because I'm afraid well, okay, but just what does that do for the rest of my life and my own self-worth and my own hopes and dreams? And the two of us have always tried to encourage the other person to the, pursue the things they're interested in, whether they're long-term or short-term. My wife at one point said, I want to go to law school. I'm like, really? Law school? Cool. Well, that would be great. That sounds really interesting. And she went to law school full-time for a year, and then she realized... It's not what I thought it was going to be. It's not what I'm interested in. I learned a lot, but I don't want to pursue it anymore. But a really productive year for her and very um, useful year, actually, just from the understanding that it gave us. So that's how we have kind of approached uh, our relationship and then including the children as they get older, recognizing that everything worth doing in life carries some sort of risk. And your job should not be to uh, slink away from life in hoping that somehow that will allow you to avoid uh, any sort of negative consequence. Um, we're all going to die, every single one of us. The real question is, what do you get done while you're alive? And how close is that to the things that are important to you? And in my case, it was a relatively clear career choice and my wife just said, okay, he's doing a dangerous thing. So let's make sure he is free to spend as much time as possible to get as good as it is he can. But he might die. So if he dies, let's think about that. Um, the, I won't be able to live in the United States after he's dead because, I'm, you know, there's no um, visa or anything that's going to keep me here. So I'll Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Where am I going to move back to? What will I do? What career will I follow? Do we have enough insurance? We're going to need this much money. Let's just make a plan and accept the fact that this is just a potential consequence of his choices and our mutual choices. And so uh, we tried to approach it that way. And fortunately, so far I didn't die. And 
uh, we've both been able to pursue a lot of things that we're interested in, and there's been an enormous amount of reward and interest and satisfaction and new experience as a result of having taken those risks. That's the universe just out the window. And then all across it here, bigger than uh, five hockey rinks, is the whole space station. It's, it's a big place, and we're just in one little corner of it here right now with experiments all around me. Average day in space, uh, uh, you wake up at 6 a.m. Uh, we live on the Greenwich time. They, they had to kind of split the pain between mission control in Moscow and mission control in Houston, so they chose London, England, about halfway between. Uh, you have an hour and a half or so in the morning to get yourself ready, just like everybody does, clean up, uh, Go to the bathroom, which is a little intricate in space, make yourself some breakfast, read the day's plan. And then we have a, a meeting with all of the mission controls all around the world uh, where we talk to each of them. There's one in Europe, there's one in Montreal, there's one in Houston, Moscow, and uh, Japan. And then once everyone's uh, told us the important stuff for the day, then we work our way through uh, experiments, fixing equipment, uh, maintaining the vehicle, all the various things you might do. Uh, a couple breaks for, for meals. It's evening time. Oh, during the day, we exercise two hours as well because... Uh, in a TV interview, your parents um, were asked to describe um, describe you, and there was a pause, and and then they said, "Capable." How would you describe your boy? Oh my! Um, a very capable human being. Extremely capable human being. <laughs> Folks, don't get mushy on me. Well, that's not mushy. That's the way he was. Why do you think they described you as, as capable? In my family, uh, being incapable is sort of the opposite of what everyone's trying to do. You know, if you can't do something, why not? And if you can't, then start figuring out how until you know how to do this thing. And I thought that was funny at the time, too, that uh, that, that was the word that they chose, capable. <laughs> you know, it's not exactly gushing with, uh, with emotion. <laughs> but... Um, they're immensely prideful. Uh, my mom calls it burging, basking in reflected glory. And she bas she will stop a whole airplane full of people and announce who her son is, which is just kind of <laughs> embarrassing for me and my brothers and sisters. Uh, I, I've sort of spent my whole life trying to become qualified to do the things that I dreamed of doing. I was just wondering if you describe, you know, the relationship you had with your father. Uh, my father was both uh, strict and interested in us um, and with us. And uh, he has worked eight hours a day, seven days a week his entire life. Always. That's just what he does. You get up and you have a big list of stuff you're going to do and you do it. And then the evening you relax. And I learned early on from him the pleasure of work the sense of satisfaction of having accomplished something that you wanted to do that day. He was quite a strict father, um, probably indicative of how he was raised by his grandfather, who was a regimental sergeant major in the Highland Light Infantry. Um, my father, interestingly enough, was uh, one generation out of phase because he was raised by his grandfather. And his grandfather was from Yorkshire and fought uh, in the First World War. So it's almost as if my dad was raised one entire generation ahead of the time that he was in. Gave him a slightly different set of values. And it led him to raise us, uh, I have two brothers and two sisters, on a farm. 
So it was a very physical and labor-intensive upbringing uh, growing up on a farm, a big working farm, 500 acres. But my dad was not only a farmer and very much a hands-on mechanic, or he's still alive, hands-on mechanic kind of guy, but also um, an airline pilot. So that level of both technical and global awareness, as well as the level of responsibility that comes with taking three or 400 people um, all around the planet. And I have great respect for him. I don't agree with all of his uh, values, what Sun does, but I'm still learning stuff from him, even though he's 83. And what was the best bit of advice that you can remember? When I was getting ready for my third space flight, uh, the first two were launching out of Florida, so not too far from Canada. So it was easy for my dad to get there. My third space flight, I launched from Baikonur, Kazakhstan. Not nearly as easy to get to. Quite, quite a trial, in fact. And my dad, around 80 at the time, and my mom, they just said, I think we'll watch this one on television. So he sent word secondhand via my older brother. And interestingly enough, what my father passed on was to trust yourself. Those are the words to me. You have been working at this your whole life. You've gathered a huge amount of experience. You've already flown in space twice. You have proven that you have all these capabilities. But now you are about to be split off from the rest of the planet. You are going to be in a position where you have to make autonomous and irreversible decisions that are life and death and high consequence. And to remember to trust yourself. You didn't get this far by by chance. And so throughout the entire half a year that I was on the spaceship, once in a while, as usual, my dad's voice would drift somewhere into the back of my head. And there were several times where, uh, where his advice was right on the money. So as a father yourself of, of uh, three uh, children, now uh, adults. Um, and a granddaughter. And a granddaughter. Well, congratulations. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. Um, how did that change you as, as, a, as a husband and as a man when, when you became a dad? Uh, being a, a father is an immense and eternal responsibility. That's how I see it. It's the easiest of things. I remember a stand-up comic, I forget which one it was in the past, who says, you need a license to drive, you need a license to fish, but you do not need a license to be a father, which just seems um, uh, difficult to understand from a way to organize society, but it's just inevitable. Um, Sex is an overpowering urge. We are never going to be short on procreation. It's just uh, biologically the same as most other animals. So fatherhood is often a consequence of not extremely deep thinking. Fatherhood is just a a natural condition for an adult male. And uh, my wife and I met very young. Um, She was 14 when we met, just turning 15. I was 16. And we dated for six years, got married, and and then had three children. But in our case, it was a fairly deliberate. Uh, she had a, she finished university before I did. She had a career, but the military was going to post me to remote places. And she was not going to be able to pursue her career for a few years. And we both recognized that we can't equally pursue our own interests simultaneously throughout our entire lives. There's going to be time when one person's takes precedence or the others. And so we, we just said, okay, we're going to get posted to Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, and Cold Lake, Alberta, and Chicoutimi, Quebec. Um, let's use this time to have children. 
And so we had one child while we were in Moose Jaw, one in Cold Lake, and one in Chicoutimi, Quebec. And it was extremely hard on my wife. She's professional, smart, university educated, and suddenly she's home with, with three kids in three years. They were three, one, and zero. Wow. And I was focusing so hard on, on trying to be uh, good at what I was doing, becoming a competent pilot and then a fighter pilot, and then being a NORAD fighter pilot in the Cold War, defending North America against armed Soviet bombers coming across through the Greenland-Iceland gap. So um, it took a lot of work on my wife and my part to try and find the constantly shifting normal. You've had an extraordinarily successful career. How did you manage the expectations your children must have had to try and emulate your success, which which must be very, very hard? How did you go about you know, managing that and, and the expectations you set with them? I think it is hard on, uh, on my children, especially my sons. Uh, the three of them have looked at what I've done, looked at what my wife Helena has done, and then looked at themselves and decided how they want to conduct life. And if every time you say your last name out loud, uh, everyone knows who your mother or your, in this case, who your father is, then you hardly ever get judged on who you are. I mean, if you're, um, I don't know, choose someone, Chelsea Clinton, I think she's a remarkably capable young person, smart. She's got the university degrees and the track record to prove it, but she will never be herself. She will always be the child of two very famous and uh, very influential people. And there's lots of folks like that in the world. And it's for better or for worse. Our children had great opportunity. They got to be exposed to influences and people and situations and, and a world that they, might, they would never have seen otherwise. As they get older, the problem becomes more significant. And when they really start to try and be successful independently, I think that's when it's the hardest. When they're in their 20s and 30s, that's when it's the hardest to, for them to truly be uh, an original individual, um, just respected for the things that they've done. You know, there's never going to be any perfect answer. Um, but it's something I still try and work on with all three of my kids. And, and my daughter, who basically just says, if there's any hint of nepotism, if there's any hint that someone is doing this because of the family name or my dad's helping, then I won't do it. I'm just going to forge my own path. Um, probably the most <laughs> interesting part is my eldest moved to China. Because in China, I'm not famous. And <laughs> he could just be his own man over in China. And he's been there for 15 years. Wow. So you love music, um, fan of David Bowie. How would you describe his legacy and his impact on you? I've always been a musician. My mom is a well-trained piano player and har natural harmony singer. Um, we always played music. Growing up on a farm, you're mostly your own entertainment, so always music. Um, but it was with great trepidation that when my son suggested, hey, you ought to do a cover of Space Oddity while you're up there. I'm going, Space Oddity? Are you kidding? That's a Bowie tune. You can't just cover Bowie. And the Christmas just before he died, I watched that old thing he did with Bing Crosby where they do a really lovely little harmony version of Little Drummer Boy, which I've liked since it came out in the 70s. And uh, Lazarus from his last album. It is this raw, 
naked, tortured uh, expose of 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 his soul. And and then he, he died a couple weeks later, and I understood why he did Lazarus. I have just great respect for him as a person because my, my limited interaction with him, we just emailed back and forth a bunch as a result of me covering Oddity. Every single interaction, he was respectful, funny, acerbic, uh, his own guy, um, insightful. But, I mean, he sent me an email out of the blue when I released an album of music and just congratulated me. And he was exactly as you would hope someone like that might be, intensely famous, intensely private. Even his own death he kept, or at least his illness he kept quite private. But uh, I have just great respect for him. So if there was, um, if there was a capability to pick up the phone and, and call 18-year-old Chris Hadfield, what advice would you give him? Trust yourself. Probably. <laughs> Good advice from your dad. Pass yeah, back. Yeah. Um, I recognized that I hardly knew anything. I had various abilities and various inabilities. Recognized that if I'm going to do the things I'm dreaming of, then there's a, a long list of qualifications I'm going to have to get past in order to convince anybody that they should trust me to fly a spaceship or, or anything even close. And I'm going to have to take each one uh, seriously and see if I can make it past every one of those thresholds. And I've always just sort of viewed my life as how well can I do with this thing I'm doing now in order to open doors and possibilities to do stuff that I'd like to do in the future? Like, can I learn how to play this complicated lick on guitar so that then I can play along with this person or... Or can I learn some words in this language so that then I can communicate with that person or whatever? It's just an endless challenge of trying to mold my own abilities to do things that I'm dreaming of doing. And that was exactly the same at 18. And, and so I, uh, I, I, I had uh, an even less formed understanding of the world then than I do now. But at that age, I made the decision after high school Let's take a year off. Let's get some work and let's just go bum around for a while, get to know some things, let myself get a little bit older before I commit to going to university. And that was a good decision to make. There are very few big decisions I've made in my life that I regret because they've sort of led to the experiences that I've had. So I, uh, I think going back to yourself at 18 years old, um, giving yourself the confidence to the pursue the things that are important to you and recognizing that none of it's going to come easy, none of it's going to go as planned, and it really entirely is up to you. Chris, it's been an absolute honor to have you on um, the podcast. That's a nice thing to say. And, Thanks. Um, I also wanted to thank you for all your support of Movember over the years and uh, for rocking that mustache. <laughs> uh, yet, I, um, on my 18th birthday, I was taking the tail end of the – of the Orient Express, I got on the train in Vienna, or I'm sorry, in Venice, and it cut north and went what was then Yugoslavia, and we're on our way to Istanbul. And um, that was the day, as I turned 18 coming through Bulgaria, that I ceased shaving my upper lip. <laughs> and it took years before I had any sort of mustache to be uh, proud of. But, um, but my wife likes how I look with a mustache. But... I think something as simple and natural as uh, a subset of facial hair, but being used in order 
to get people to recognize that there are uh, health issues and mental issues and such that should be addressed. And if, if it's something as simple as letting your mustache grow and then thinking about it a little bit, that's a real net positive. So I'm happy to support Movember. Thanks. Thanks to the Movember team, John Ackerman, Kirsty Wood, Mitch Hermanson, and Max Rosenstein. Production assistance from Ali Gordon Moshal. We'd like to thank Chris Hadfield and his team. Music featured in this episode is from Pottington Baird, Blue Dot Sessions, and Chris Hadfield. Mixing by Dara Hirsch. The Movember podcast is produced and edited by Rose Reed. I'm your host, Adam Garoni. Tune in next week for more candid conversations about transitions. The station, this is Houston ACR. That concludes the event. Thank you. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.